Just in and so good. Thousands of summer deals at your Nordstrom Rack Store. Save up to 60% on new arrivals from Vince, Rag & Bone, Adidas, Joe's, Marc Jacobs, and more. Great brands, great prices every day at Nordstrom Rack. But hurry for first dibs. Get your summer favorites up to 60% off at Nordstrom Rack today. Great brands, great prices. That's why you rack. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network. Today on the James Altucher Show. We hated not the enemy, but we hated the land, Vietnam, the soil, the place. Every step was maybe. Maybe I'll die, maybe I won't. And then another step, maybe. It was with all of us. 85, 90% of our casualties came from landmines, not gunfire, not the typical battle things you'll see in movies. It was landmines with a killing force. Uh, they were inanimate, you couldn't kill them back. And that maybeness, will I live or die? When you're 21, 22 years old, it, 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 it lasts, it doesn't go away. I've carried it through my whole life and now I've carried it into, into fatherhood. We're getting old, I'm now 73. And every, just like in Vietnam, like every day is maybe there'll be a tomorrow, maybe there won't. But as you just said, that's true for everyone, that we all write our maybe books. Maybe my dreams will come true, maybe not. Maybe I'll change my dreams, amend them or qualify them as I've done throughout my life. There's a theme to my life. <laughs> I mean, that's it. Well, I think you make a really interesting point, which is more interesting. I mean, I don't even want to bring up too much on politics, but you make a really interesting point about writing, which is don't don't be afraid to contradict facts. Yeah. Because we live in a world where everybody's so sure of themselves over this all the time, when in fact, we know nothing. Yeah. And contradictions... So, what the all world's about. Us, yeah. That's, uh, and writers are afraid. They want to yeah. have an opinion that people respect. Yeah. But the reality is, storytelling's not about opinion it's not, and, and it's not even always about intellect, the rational side of the mind. You can, you can talk rationally about um, empathy, for example. And wish you had more. He had none. But to tell a story where you've see a person being empathetic or the opposite moves you in a way because you're on, on the detail of it. It's not abstract. It's you're, wit you're witnessing it as it happens without it, that analysis thing. You know, and one of the hardest things to be do what I do, which is mostly fiction, but even in here is to force myself to trust the story, not examine it. Oh and my God! That, fact, I want to save that for our interview. Because no, no, he he recorded that, so we oh, we're good. He? Oh, good. <laughs> so, oh, so I'll do a, a quick intro. So, I am so honored to have Tim O'Brien, author of the brand new, excellent book. So excellent, it made me cry. It's called Dad's Maybe Book. I don't even know how to pronounce it. Dad's Maybe Book, <laughs> but it's basically kind of these almost love letters between you and your two sons as they grow up and you're kind of an, an older father than most and you're grappling with all these issues of, you know, being a parent, dealing with your own 
age and and many other issues that we'll talk about. Uh, you're also famously the author of uh, the book "The Things They Carried." I when it first came out, it was sort of called a collection of short stories. Now they call it an an interlocking novel, but I always think of it as a collection of short stories. I don't know how you've thought about it. It was published in different mm. magazines too, and journals. It was, yeah. So, Chapters appeared in a bunch of magazines. I don't. I th- I just called it a work of fiction because, like you, I'm not quite sure how to describe it. The stories do interlock. The characters appear in all the stories. And and you call it fiction, but you're also in the book. And sometimes you kind of break mm-hmm. that wall, and you're like, I you're talking to the reader. Mm-hmm. I do. It's uh, it was a technical challenge in a way. I wanted to write a novel that felt like and read like a memoir. And that required using my own name to make get that feeling as how much of this came from the real world and how much has come, comes from the world of imagination. And my life has been that way. Some things come from the real world. Other things come to me from my imagination. What do you mean your life is that way? Um, today was that way. I'll give you an example of what happened when I arrived in New York. Uh, was it yesterday or two days ago? I can't even remember anymore of it two hours of sleep. Met a friend of mine, a filmmaker, we went to a bar, and my wallet was taken. And I lost all my money. I lost credit cards, I lost my driver's license. The first day of a book tour, how do you get through security? It felt like I was living in a dream. This couldn't have happened. I also felt that I'd lost my identity. How could I prove who I am to anybody? To you, coming on your show. Yeah, I'm Tim O'Brien. What if I weren't? You'd say, see your driver. There's no driver's license. So I felt as if I were in a dream, much like I felt in Vietnam. This can't be real. Um, My hands can't do what they're doing, pulling a trigger. My feet can't keep walking through minefields after minefields of watching other people die. It, It can't be real. On the other hand, intellectually, it is real, and it can't be real. And um, so much of the world seems to come at me that way, including being now an old man. That How can that be real? I don't believe it until I look in a mirror. And I say, my God, look at those eyes and that face. Because there's this real, other untrue reality inside me, which is I'm 34, 35 years old, and, and yet I'm not when I look in the mirror. But wait, when you um, so this this just happened this morning. Your wallet was stolen. Did you get? Did you find it? Did you get it back? I got the wallet back. I didn't get the money. The cops uh, found it, and I I'm not quite sure where they found it. I had I spent yesterday in a police station, about four or five hours, mostly waiting to talk to the police. I just sat there, and they their eyes never connected with mine. They just skim over me. And then finally a detective took me up to his office and made calls and they'd found the wallet and all the IDs were there. So I've got that back. And now that happy guy yesterday, I was just miserable. I wanted to cry and go home. And uh, the loss of the money is nothing compared to losing your identity. Well, so so I I guess there's a couple of things to mention. One is this is your first book in 20-some years, Dad's Maybe book, but it's every bit as beautiful as as this book. So The Things They Carried, this is kind of your, I don't want to say it's your seminal Vietnam book. You have many 
good, good books all around, and and I don't want to limit your subject, but this is again connected stories of um, people in a uh, particular platoon in in for a year in in Vietnam, and the the first chapter, the first story, the things they carried refers to, and it's this beautiful metaphor about what specifically all these, um, uh, you know, people on the ground in Vietnam, the, 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 the people you served with, what they're carrying in their bags, you know, the photo, the, the bulletproof vest, whatever it is they're carrying. But it also refers metaphorically to everybody brings their, their bag of issues with them when they're going to war, whether literally or figuratively. Mm-hmm. And I found it to be very beautiful because it's analogous to pe- things we all go through in life. We, not everybody goes to a war. We all go through our own personal wars and we carry our own baggage and issues with us into those, those very personal wars. And I almost feel like this book, Dad's Maybe Book, even though it's almost 30 years later since the things they carried, this is o- I almost found this to be oddly a sequel of sorts to the things they carried. Like this is, so, so on the surface, this is a book about uh, parenting and these love letters to your kids, which tells your story of, of fatherhood and their story of growing up and, and things you've learned and they've learned. But it's also a book about writing because you're constantly analyzing and breaking down writing for your children and giving them writing. And it's also, again, a book about Vietnam and it's a book about war and it's how to how to think about war and how to make decisions. Like I, I love this one point where you say to your kids, you start off with advice in one of your letters, it's okay to go to war, but... Um, make sure if you're in, you know, in favor of war, that you're the one willing to go do it. And you start to then, we, unra- we start to unravel your real opinions about this situation, or at least how to think about it so that you're not, uh, so that one is not a hypocrite and one realizes the, the, the en- uh, enormousness of this decision. Yeah, that, that you really, I, I look at it as a sequel too. And I've secretly thought that I really don't, haven't articulated that, um, even to my own editor, but most of the things that are addressed and the things they carried reappear uh, 20 years later, 30 years later, through the prism of nonfiction, stories about the, the un, uninvented stories, unimagined stories, things from the real world. Um, and it, the, the, inter, the, interlo- the word maybe in the title of the new book, Dad's Maybe Book, is all the way back to Vietnam where every step was maybe. Maybe I'll die, maybe I won't. And then another step, maybe. It was with all of us. 85, 90% of our casualties came from landmines, not gunfire, not the typical battle things you'll see in movies. It was landmines with a killing force. Uh, they were inanimate, you couldn't kill them back. Uh, they, they embittered us. We hated not the enemy, but we hated the land, Vietnam, the soil, the place. And that maybeness, will I live or die? When you're 21, 22 years old, it, 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 it lasts. It doesn't go away. I've carried it through my whole life, and now I've carried it into, into fatherhood. We're getting old. I'm now 73. And every, just like in Vietnam, like every day is maybe there'll be a tomorrow. Maybe there won't. But as you just said, that's true for everyone, that we all write our maybe books, 
Maybe my dreams will come true. Maybe not. Maybe I'll change my dreams, amend them or qualify them, as I've done throughout my life. I, I had presented this idea of fatherhood. I didn't, losing my independence and, and, uh, you mentioned, you mentioned in the beginning of this, that you and your wife, Meredith initially, well, you weren't married then, I guess, but you initially split up because we you were so sure you didn't want to have kids and you were surprised how sure she could be in loving something that didn't yet exist. Yeah, I call it heartlessly reproductive. I remember I, I used the word crocodile when, when during our arguments. I said, how can you love something that doesn't even exist more than you love me? And <laughs> she'd say, how can you be so selfish? And, and eventually we did break up for a couple of weeks and we met in a restaurant and spent know, six or seven hours, a long time in this place telling each other stories of our lives. How did we become the way we were? And she had a lot of bad stuff happening in her life as a, as a little girl. Her sister was in a mental institution. Her other sister committed suicide. Um, mother died young. And I was carrying my own burdens from childhood, an alcoholic father, that basically the town drunk. He was, it was a tense... I was afraid of him. I idolized him and loved him dearly, but I was terrified of him. And when we, so when we talk these things out, the idea of, of having a kind of a normal, happy family life, whatever the hell that is, I don't know quite what it is, but was we both wanted it, but I didn't quite know it yet, and she did. And uh, in a way, she rescued me, I think, that, um, I stopped writing for 10 years, as you mentioned. I wanted to be a good dad. And you can't be a good dad if you're not present. You can't sit at a word processor or a computer for 12 hours a day. And then the other 12 hours spend worrying about your book. Is it good? Will people like it? Do you, will I like it? Um, you got to be there. And I did it. I just said, I'm stopping. And uh, I did that she rescued me from an old Tim O'Brien and I became a new guy. When, when you say rescued, and, and, and this refers to something else you said a, a minute ago, do you feel like you were almost addicted to this process of sitting down every day for 12 hours and writing and then worrying about whether it was good or not? Like, did you yeah. question whether you would be able to ha have a voice if you in the world if you weren't engaged in this process. Yeah. I attach my love of myself to a paragraph, a bit of dialogue. I love myself only insofar as I'd love a scene. Um, my self-esteem was attached to it. My sense of, of liking myself was attached not to human beings, but they were attached to words on a page. And, uh, I was torn away. I was torn away from it initially, but I realized when I stopped writing for all those years that how lonely I had been, sitting alone in my underwear, not leaving the the house for days on end. Sometimes weeks, I would not leave. 
um, I missed, without realizing, I missed them people. And uh, now being the father of these two precious little boys and a great wife, I'm out in the world in a way, and I'm writing again, but I'm writing from a, a, a revel, for what me feels an internal kind of revolution. I feel full of love. I feel a ticking clock. Every minute I'm getting older, and I want to use each second to, to squeeze love into the bones of my children and my wife. It, just squeeze it in. And that's um, a really great feeling. It's, it's, um, it makes, I'm tearing up now, but I don't feel, I'm not sad. I'm so happy with what has happened that it, that's what uh, makes me tear up. And it feels that uh, uh, a new kind of beauty has come into my life. That's not the, exactly the beauty that's addressed in the things they carried, but it's analogous to it. There's a beauty of surviving a war and a beauty of hanging on to your sense of morality during a war. It's so hard to do. But this is a new kind, and it feels um, like I feel like a new human being. And so so when you when you started writing this, your son, Tad, I think it was, asked you, what are you writing? And, you know, somehow it came up that maybe this would be a book. And, T and Tad, your, your youngest, said, that's what you have to call this book, maybe. Right. You said you've got to call it what it is. You said you've got to be honest. You're writing non you said you're writing nonfiction. You better tell the truth. So call it what it is. Uh, and then he asked me, I can't remember if I put this in the book. Maybe it was a day later or a couple days later. <laughs> he was then, I don't know, like eight years old or so, and... And at the dinner table, he said, do they pay you for these books? And I said, yeah. And he said, do they pay extra for the title? And I Was he trying to work it. out a deal for himself? And he, he wrote an IOU to me to, that I still haven't paid off. I, I owe him 10 bucks that I'll eventually give him. At this, uh, But, you know, as a little kid, he, he was, that word maybe, he was on to what we were talking about earlier, that, that contingency that life has, especially when you're getting old but in other parts of life too. Do you think, do you think uh, when you, so you were in Vietnam 1969, mm. is that right? And then uh, do you think, you know, you referred to this sense of maybe it, when you were at war, like each step, you don't know, you know, maybe it's your last or maybe it's the last step of the person next to you or you, right. you don't know what, what the next, when you round the next path or whatever, right. what, what, what will happen. Uh, do you think, this it's almost like a philosophy of maybe that you have to get comfortable with that maybe, and, and a lot of people can't do that. That is for sure. That is so for sure. I mean, I, part of the, one of the threads throughout the new book is my, my hatred for absolutism, that it kills people, or can and has. And there's nothing evil about saying, I think something's true, or maybe it's true, or I believe or it's my opinion, but when you have absolutist rhetoric coming out of the television set and the radio, and so many, I'm not talking just political, that too, of course, but in other ways too, cultural, religious, absolutism, 
always think, how, how can you be so sure? Um, I've changed my mind about so many things in my life. I've been as wrong. I've been wrong as often as I've been right. Maybe more wrong than right. Well, you had kids, for instance. <laughs> right, and I thought I never would. And I'm, I'm still alive. And I thought, you're not going to survive this war. It's impossible. You hated Cub Scouts. You uh, don't like bugs. You don't like sleeping in the ground. Camping out is from idiots. I mean, I did none of it. I didn't know one end of a rifle from another when I went. I mean, I was, and I made it through that. Um, what seemed impossible. I was pretty sure that I was a dead man. The irony of it all was that the, the men who were athletic and um, sort of enjoying the war in a strange, macho way, tough talk and kind of gallows humor all the time, were the men who ended up dying. As good as they were, it was just luck. And I had good luck, and theirs was bad. My foot went one inch maybe from a line. I'll never know how close a foot came to a landmine. But behind me and in front of me, they were going off, and guys were losing legs and dying. So, yeah, it, that contingency, that maybe-ness, it, it, it was so infectious that I spent my life in that world of doubting any absolute declarations about the world. Um, I've always ended up modifying them and amending them, and maybe I'll end up modifying and amending what I'm saying right now. Very possible I will. Well, you know, a lot of this maybe, this idea of maybe comes through in many of your books. And I'm, I have two in front of me, the dad's maybe book and the things they carried. But you described one as fiction, one as nonfiction. But I think even that distinction is is blurred, you know, in the sense that, for instance, in the things they carried, this clearly... Many of these events clearly happened to you. In fact, Tim O'Brien is a character in mm -hmm. the things they carried. You're, and you say the word I, like you're, you, and right. it's clear you're referring to yourself. So you go back and forth between fiction and nonfiction. Even in this, it's almost becomes, right. it's, it's just literary writing and storytelling. You could tell it fiction it or nonfiction. And, and, and you can argue also all nonfiction is fiction because it's just coming out of our memory. Of course. Yeah. If you could tell me everything that happened to you yesterday, I'd be amazed. It would be impossible. Every word that came out of your mouth, I couldn't do it. Every the sequence of things that happened. When, what about a week ago? And then what about 10 years ago? Of course. So it's not, it's not absolute recollection. Most of our lives vanish as we live them. Food we had last night, I can't remember. I don't think I had any. Um, and you had just gotten out of the police station. You're probably <laughs> they, really they, tired. They weren't feeding me at the police station. The, uh, much of the, for example, in, in the new book, Dad's Maybe book, there is, there, I was doing exactly what I was doing in the things they carried. I didn't, that dialogue was not recorded. I recollected it, tried to be faithful to what I said in various circumstances, what my father said, my children say. I was trying to be faithful to the world as it had come at me but I did have to make up the sentences. I had to recollect as best I could and then present it on the page. 
So you're right when you say that, that when I call the one book nonfiction and the other fiction, the blur is, it, they're in a way to me identical. Um, I am more, I'm more faithful to what really happened in the new book than I am in the things he carried. A lot of things are invented in there. Here, nothing's invented out of whole cloth. But in a way, even in the things he carried, it wasn't totally invented. The stories were launched by something in the real world, which would then be transformed through imagination into more than what had happened. Sometimes it, this could have happened or it should have happened. I wrote, a, I wrote a whole novel called Going After Cacciato that was about a man who one day in the war decided to walk away and head for Paris. Well, it didn't happen, but it could have happened. And I'm, I'm sure you probably wondered it many times. What happens if I just, just walk away and yeah, leave? we're walking anyway, just straighten Go it west. out and head for Paris. <laughs> And uh, we, had, we had two guys who went AWOL in Vietnam out in the middle of nowhere. They just vanished, and it turned out they had walked away from the war not very far. They went to a village and just lived with some villagers for a while until they ran out of sea rations, and they didn't want to eat whatever was being eaten in the village, and they came back. But there was this desire to escape um, that all of us felt. Dear God, let this be over. And... Some would be explicit about it. I was explicit. I want. I want. I want to be out of this place. I want to. I want peace. Uh, some of the best books I've read about war: Red Badge of Courage, Henry Fleming, Fleeing from Battle, the Assyrian, just dreaming about getting out of this war, or in Catch Twenty Two, you know, rowing to Sweden. Um, even in Hemingway's work, you know, a, a farewell to arms, a man essentially deserts and, uh, uh, you know, rows his way over, I guess, I think it was to Switzerland. And it's it, the instinct to preserve one's life, and even more than that, your moral integrity is a strong one. Killing people is an ugly thing, even in the most righteous cause. It's really ugly. You know, in, in, in the things they carried, um, and by the way, I just want to mention that for a literary set of interlocking short stories, this also sold 2 million copies and was quite a success, um, or over 2 million copies. You know, you have... You have the this really intense chapter, uh, uh, the man I killed, and uh, again, it's fiction or nonfiction. We'll, we'll we'll get to that in a second, but it it also strikes me how much in both of these books and in many of your books, the structure of the writing is itself part of the story. So in in the man I killed, um, you the, you it's the one time the main narrator never really speaks. Mm -hmm. So the, or, or, or you're aware of the narrator not speaking. Right. So I think it was Kiawa, uh, your, your platoon mate or whatever you call it, who is trying to get the, the main character to talk before you even really know what happened. You know somebody was right. killed. You know it was horrible. And really the story is this other character trying to get the main character to, to 
break open, to, to, mm-hmm. to, to spill it out, to spill the story out. So even the reader, we're not getting the right. story. We just know roughly what happened the same way the other characters in the book know. Mm-hmm. And then in the very next chapter, you, you talk about the difference between fiction and nonfiction right mm-hmm. here in a fictional book. And then you say, I did this. Mm-hmm. And you tell the story. Yeah. And uh, again, structurally, it's almost as if you were coming to grips with what happened by first hiding yourself in the in the main story that says, I killed somebody. It's mm-hmm. titled, I killed a man. And then the the title after that, Ambush, it's as if something's happening to you, but you're able to, that gives you permission to tell yes. the story. Yeah, that's, the dynamic was pretty much as you just described it, maybe a little even more simple in my I wanted to, I will never know if I killed anybody during the war. It's unknowable. You can't see bullets hit things. But I do know I sprayed the world with fire, gunfire. I do know I shot back. Um, I knew, I also know I didn't aim much. I just, it was mostly to make the enemy go away, just, just spray the world. However, I can't avoid responsibility just by saying, oh, I don't know if I killed anybody. I did. I was a soldier. I was in a war. And I pulled the trigger. I was part of it. And in in that chapter you just mentioned, the man I killed, it's a way of putting a face on what may have, I may have done, uh, kill a person. God knows it's haunted my dreams and my waking world for all 50 years now. Was I responsible? I remember a day we came across a, a, a dead little girl. It was after a firefight that lasted four or five minutes. And we were walking away from it, and I looked down, and none of us had been hurt. But caught in this fire was a nine, ten-year-old little girl. Half her face was gone. Her one eye that was left was wide open. And I remember looking down at her and just thinking, well, the world must be a better place. Right? That's why we have wars, isn't it? To make the world a better place. We don't have them to make it a worse place. Save our liberties and don't besmirch our honor and don't have Ho Chi Minh running through the streets of Seattle and all that bullshit. But it sure as hell didn't feel like a better place. I felt I was c- complicit in centuries-old evil. Well, that's so... It, it, that little girl's face will live for, for me with, forever. And she was one of numerous such that I tried to collapse into the man I killed. Images and horrors that I recollect. And as a storyteller, you try to collapse it into something one image and stare at it for a while and force the reader to look at the nastiness of it for a while. And um, that sense of sorrow of participating in something so evil as killing other people. At one point in the new book, I propose we delete the word war from our dictionaries and replace it by Every time you want to declare war, you, you say you declare, "I want to kill people, including children." So the 
never uh, you'd have to rewrite the Gettysburg Address and all of Shakespeare and, and you know the history of the world. So it's a tongue-in-cheek recommendation, but I really believe in it. It's earnest. War has become such an abstract war, word that you can go to your PTA or your Kiwanis Club and be belligerent in your rhetoric. And uh, but if you have to say at the PTA, I want to kill people, including children which is what war is, it's going to be harder to get out of your mouth and maybe you won't be quite so bellicose in your, in, in your rhetoric and in your behavior. The man I killed represents the, the horror that still lives within me. I read that story aloud in Chicago like 12 years ago or something like that and I cried as I was reading it. And after it was over, this young man, 21, 22-year-old guy, came up to me and gave me a hug and said, I could tell that was tough on you, but I appreciate your honesty. And then I said, thanks. And he turned, and he turned back to me and he said, by the way, I've been thinking about joining the Marine Corps, <laughs> and now I know I will. And I went back to my hotel and I looked at them in the mirror. I thought, what a yo-yo I am and what a failure. And the idea was the opposite of what he took from it. He took something mysteriously his from something that the author intended in a 180 degree in the other way. Watch out, be careful about going, wanting to go to wars. And um, I often feel... I'm like a, my books brush up against readers, but they take from a book what their temperaments and their histories prepared them for. You in in Dad's maybe book, and I like how this conversation, just like these books, bouncing is, back and forth. Yeah, because they're both related to each other. Because you you give as a writing advice to your kids. So again, I see this as three books in one. It's about parenting. It's a it's like a master class on writing. It's about war. And you mention you mention that story, and you also mention in the writing advice in one of the letters to your children, you say, leave room in a story for other people to um, experience their own lives within the story. I forget exactly. the exact words you use, but I thought that was very beautiful. I never thought of it that way. And, and that's related to another piece of advice you give, which is don't overplot. So mm -hmm. maybe... You can elaborate on that because it's part of the writing process of, of all your yeah. books. What does it mean to leave space in a, in a story? It means don't explain your own story. Let the story explain itself. I could tell you an anecdote, and I'm going to do it, and then I'm going to explain it. You're going to hear the difference. So this is out of the new book again. When we were vacationing in southern France at a ritzy, really expensive hotel, way beyond our means, it's full of tanned, everybody looked like George Hamilton or Johnny Depp. I mean, all these movie stars and money and jewelry. We didn't belong there. And uh, one day, my wife and I were having a piece of pizza outside and a Coke. Total bill, like $75 or something. And and the pizza tasted like duck liver and the Coke was flat and, and we were complaining about this and the phone rang my cell phone was my sister calling and she said mom died today 
And I went over to a ping pong table where my kids who then were at maybe six and eight years old, something like that, very young. And I said, my mother died. And they didn't say much, and I didn't say much more. And then for the next two hours, we just silently played ping pong. Gradually, dusk set in, in this kind of purple twilight and this beautiful Mediterranean scenery before us. We were walking down a hill, going to dinner in a little village nearby. And I took Timmy's hand, who was eight at the time, I think. And I said to him, are you thinking about grandma? And he said, no. I'm thinking about you thinking about grandma. That's the story. But you can explain it. You can talk about what empathy from an eight-year-old kid. You'd think we'd be thinking about basketball and kid stuff. And what a, how I'd lost some qualities I'd had as a child of empathy for the world. I, I drive by homeless people now. I'm embarrassed even to look at them. I give money to the United Way and chalk it up. That I've lost some of that quality that I used to have through uh, getting old, I guess, all the years on this planet. Now I'm explaining something, and it's not as... It's true stuff, I'm saying, but it's not... It doesn't... It grabs you in a different kind of way. It grabs your intellect, and stories are intended to hit your intellect, yes, but they're aimed at your tear glands in the back of your throat and at your heart and your stomach can turn in a story. And it, that's another kind of knowing. It's physical sensation knowing. Well, what a word will do. No, I'm thinking about you, thinking about Grandma. And it, the story is better than the analysis. And that's what one of the hardest things for me to have learned as a writer, and I'm still guilty of lo losing it, is to trust the story and don't explain it. And when I read books I don't like much and short stories I don't like much, it's usually associated with tidying up the world and explaining things too much. Much of the world that intrigues me is inexplicable. I don't know why I do what I do. I don't know why I'm on a book tour now. Um, I mean, I could talk about things, but it wouldn't explain why I'm actually talking with you right now. I really don't know. It's a mystery. And uh, I, so I, I try to make myself trust the anecdote or the story itself. You know, you know what's, what's interesting to me in that example also is that that particular story in the book, and I remember it, um, it, it ends, of course, with him saying, I'm thinking about, you know, you, what you're thinking about grandma. It's almost like using dialogue as opposed to analysis. Mm -hmm. Dialogue are real words that someone says, and you end the story with that line. But, but uh, real words that are spoken are almost like the tip of a very big iceberg. Mm -hmm. So he has his whole history with you underneath those words. And it's right. up to us, the reader, to then kind of feel or imagine what that iceberg 
is like. And maybe right. that's a little bit of what you're saying. It's what a lot saying. of what I'm, that we have to, as, as readers, we're participating in something and we're bringing our lives into a story. Um, and our lives are all, in many ways, different from everybody else's life. Different experiences, different values. And you you take from a, a story, a line, but you're reading it through the through your own history, you're a human being reading it. You're not a computer analyzing it. You're taking it. And you're taking it, all of us, in different kinds of ways. Um, to trust a story is, I think, to not... It's like, it's like joining a magician, which is my hobby, backstage. You go backstage and you see, oh, here's how the trick was done. And it stops being mysterious. Stuff's being full of wonder and joy and delight and surprise. It's it's mechanical, and that's that's explaining a thing. You've learned how the trick was done. In a story, you try to create an illusion of setting and place and per people without the the association of explanation underneath it all. Let the reader do the explaining, just as you just said. So so. Again, sticking to that that particular story, you knew so so when planning, so let's say our whole lives are a collection of thousands of stories, and you have to pick the right ones for each book. So of course, this is a moment that's intense for you, your mm-hmm. mother dying. It's intense, perhaps in a different way for your children, but it's also intense for you to tell your children. So you know that this story works for you, and you explain it as simply as possible, but then by leaving that that gap, mm-hmm. it allows, for instance, me or another reader to say, well, how would I feel when my mother dies? Or will my children react a similar way when I explain to them? Uh, mm-hmm. So it gives me opportunities to think and think of my own story in this context. It's almost like you're giving me, you're giving me a, a, a special kind of permission to analyze this anecdote without you shoving a plot Doing down it my for throat. You. Right, exactly. It, without shoving an explanation down your throat. But but then the anecdote itself also, you 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 said a couple other things that are structurally part of the story. One is you told them and then you guys silently played ping pong for a few hours. So that's the story, but I have to wonder why you include that instead of instead of immediately going to Timmy's quote. I imagine you yourself are dealing with this news that you got, and it's comforting. One of the things parenting and and having children have given you is this comforting buffer against this intensity. You can get back to, to being present with them while you absorb this emotional news. Mm-hmm. And then you going down the hill in the sunset to a nice village you know, there's a, there's a there's a lot of different meanings there in the the context mm-hmm. of the story. And again, I love how structurally these anecdotes that don't seem that seem to be almost generic, but they're not, are fully part of this story without explicitly saying so. Yeah, they're, they're every, you said everything that I hope to accomplish. I wanted the ping pong in the center of that that silent two hours of ping pong. It's, it goes by in a couple of sentences. It's not a lot, but there has to be there had to be some kind of something in the story to represent the stunned silence inside of me. I didn't know what to think. I wasn't capable of crying. I felt like I was in L'Etranger or Marcel 
can't weep over his own mother's death. But but without so so in in the stranger by community, he doesn't weep over his mother's death. But that itself is part of the story. Whereas here, there's a different sense, right? You're playing ping pong, which is almost like this wordless conversation back and forth. Mm-hmm. Ra- rather than just sitting there, that could have been an option for you. You could yeah. have just sat there and watched them yeah. play ping pong. But that would have seemed a little more emotional for you, uncaring for them. Instead, yeah. you're you're back in their lives. And as opposed to the main character of The Stranger, who wonders what he's going to have for lunch immediately after right. you know his mother dies. I don't I don't remember exactly what he does, but it's that right. flavor. Yeah. So again, structurally for him, that was part of the story, and for you, it was you have to. Yeah. So, it's, so 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 it's that's part weird. of your, that's right. I mean, it's uh, there's there, there's there there are, there are different kinds of silences in the world, and the, the silence in my book is a different sort from that in The Stranger. The silence here is this ping pong representing wordlessness, but these thoughts going through my head, the ball going back and forth. But the thoughts are images that were happening in my head. My mom is a young woman. My mom in a hospital bed. Uh, and all kinds of other, it's like a ball going through my head. But I wasn't able to, to um, make sense of anything. They were just images coming. And I couldn't make emotional sense of it. I didn't know what to do with my body. And the ping pong was doing something with my body. And having these two little boys who, who uh, I'm actually helping one of the boys do it. I'm trying, Tad was then barely as tall as the ping pong table. He could barely reach. So he's playing ping pong with my hand, helping him. It, 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 it was... It, represented structurally, but also in the, just the content of the doing ping pong, what was happening in my head. Uh, these balls going back and forth for two hours or so. But, but I find what's fascinating is you don't say what's in your head. You say, we played ping pong wordlessly yeah. for two or three hours, however, however long. It reminds me of, uh, and you refer to Hemingway a lot in, in Dad's mm-hmm. Maybe book, you, you, you force your kids, your poor kids, you force your kids <laughs> to read all these Hemingway stories that I know as a kid would have been the most boring stories in the world. Now I appreciate them a, a more, but back then never. Right. And Me too. You, but 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 it reminds me though of and, and obviously Hemingway's an influence on you. It, like in the sun almost rises, the main character is going upstairs with his room, with his the mm-hmm. the the main yeah. female character, and they spend two hours there and then leave. So you don't know what's happening. He has he mm-hmm. has this war injury. You don't yeah. know. You never right. know. But uh, we we get to fill in those gaps, and the yeah. silence itself becomes part of the story. It does. It's it's again. It's not attacking the reader and beating him over the head the way we would if we were to write a reasoned essay. It's attacking a reader, the whole human being, the head, but also the heart and the gut and everything else we have. The skin should we want to prickle where you feel a story, and it's not just the head doing it. And that's where silence comes in, is that you you want the reader to have a moment of silence. I even told you the story with pauses. They weren't theatrical pauses. I didn't do it on purpose, but they were pauses. They were emotional, like, don't cry, Tim. 
and gathering myself then uttering the next word. But that, you feel the silence when it's present in the story. It makes your heart kind of worry. Is that guy going to cry? Is he going to... Is he going to get through it? Wait, we're on the balance there. Like, what are you doing right after your mother died? Are you upset? Are you, why are you playing ping pong? Or what are you thinking about? We're worried for you. It could go either way. You mm-hmm. could be a sociopath or there could be some yeah. emotional touching yeah. thing. But then you do a, a quasi-silence when you were just describing it to me. You, you describe the sunset. You describe walking down the hill. You describe going to the village. That's a silence in and of itself. You're spreading out the time Mm -hmm. between you telling your children about your mother and then Timmy's final quote. So you still are are stretching the silence. Yeah, it's a it's how I again. It's I write. I don't write with uh, the thought of doing what you said, even though I did what you said. I don't think about it. My thoughts are on trying to represent um, how inadequate. And not even inadequate, how impossible words were for me. Um, that's that, that, that's what all that was meant to represent, the going down to the hill, the purple light, the Mediterranean, the rich milieu of it all, this ritzy hotel where we didn't belong. It's, it's meant to represent wordlessness. And so there is no dialogue until that one piece at the very end. It's a wordless, unspoken, no speech. It's, and it was meant to capture an emotion that you hope other people will respond to. It, it will be just as you said, what about my own mother, my own children? What would I do? I wondered for years, how am I going to respond when I learn that my parents have died? I remember I was little, how a little, seven, lying in my bed, um, cradling my pillow and imagining it was my father dead and we were in a, we were t- together somehow dead. And um, I, I imagine I'll go insane if I hear my dad dies. I imagine I'll never be able to stop crying. Um, and then he did. And my imagination, what I did instead of all that was my wife had awakened me at two in the morning and told me he died. And all I did was say thanks. And then I turned and fell asleep. I would never have imagined that would be my response. And even now I, I feel I loved him so deeply and adored him, idolized him, and that was my response to the news. I could say more, which, but that would be explaining something that had occurred to me that's, that's actually happened. But if I start explaining it, it's going to get, it's not going to be mysterious to me anymore or to, or to a reader. I it, 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 the mysteries, how could I say thanks and then go to sleep? Uh, I don't know. And I, I guess I, I don't want to know. Well, when you woke up after that next morning, after you slept, what, was the, what did you do? I wrote an obituary. 
I knew I couldn't read it. I'm an emotional guy, and I knew I'd just bawl throughout it all. But I wrote it. Uh, it was it was both an obituary and it was a, a funeral thing talk. And I had my brother read it. He totally messed up the prose, and um, he's a he always was, a critic. He's a basketball player, <laughs> and he uh, not a writer. So he told a few jokes throughout it all. He just throw them in about our dad and funny things that had happened, which was good. It was refreshing. Mine was a little more uh, somber than his. In the end, uh, he did a, just a great job. I don't know how we, how we can do it without uh, crying. I couldn't have. So, so again, it's this... Uh, I, I, I am loving more and more the title with the maybe in it because... As you write, you also can't control what the reader is going to read or learn or understand. Like this young man who read your book and, and listened to you, and then he joined the Marines. Like, mm -hmm. the more you try to control what they think, probably the more you're going to fail at it. Absolutely. It's like raising kids in a way. The more you try to convince them to eat their broccoli, the more they're not going to want to eat their broccoli. You can say a billion things to them about broccoli is good for you. It actually ends up tasting good. But they just stare at you and don't eat their broccoli. The more you try to control something, the, the, it feels, in me, it would create kind of a resentment. If my dad kept trying to tell me, my, you know, eat your broccoli, the more I'm going to you know, hide it under the table or put it in my lap, which I used to do not with broccoli. I used to do with peas. I would, there was a little ledge where I sat on the table, right below the surface of the table, Right, I'd stack up all the peas in a long row, and uh, there was a tablecloth I could kind of put over it when I was finished. Then later, I'd go clean the peas up and throw them away. Well, my mom finally found finally found the peas before I remembered to go back and get them, and boy, did I pay hell that night. Yeah, the controlling thing is uh, is dangerous, and it's probably my main failing as a father that I, I love both boys so much. I want the best for them, and so I I I try to I don't say push them, but I try to guide them toward things that I think will be good for them. Um, like what you had mentioned earlier, you know, feeding them some stories that I like or dislike. I gave them stories I don't like, Hemingway stories, and see how they'd respond. Well, I liked your analysis of in in the book. You have them read The Killers by Hemingway, one of Hemingway's most famous mm -hmm. early stories, the one of the Nick Adams stories. And I liked your analysis where it felt to you slightly cartoonish, the, mm -hmm. the dialogue, not, not the dialogue, but the descriptions and the dialogue. And um, one of your kids, I think maybe it was Timmy, says, um, you know, why'd you... Why'd you have us read this then? And mm -hmm. uh, or, or, you know... Yeah, I said, what, a boxer? It's about a boxer who has either thrown a fight or hasn't thrown a fight that he was paid to throw by a gambler. And uh, the gambler sends two thugs to kill this guy, this boxer. And the boxer, Nick goes to the boxer in the end of the story and says, you know, these two guys are coming here to kill you. They're here. And the boxer says, I'm tired of running. I'm just going to lie here. And so I asked Timmy, he said, well, what, what did you make of that? And he said... Well, I wasn't thinking about that. And I said, what were you thinking about? And he said, 
don't boxers hit people in the face? I said, yeah. And he said, don't boxers get hit in the face? I said, yeah. And he said, I was thinking about why would anybody want to be a boxer? Hemingway didn't intend that. But what a cool thing to... That's what we were talking about maybe from the beginning of our conversation is how you can't control a reader's response. A reader brings a life to art and brings things out of art that may not be even remotely connected to what the artist is intending. It's a, and it has to do with trusting a story. That If you take that out of a story, that's a great lesson. Why would anybody want to be a boxer? A plus. I gave him, like, watching your kids swish a three-pointer, down it goes. And you think, wow, that what a brilliant literary critic that kid is. Well, Even though it's not related at all to the story. Well, it's interesting. In this story, uh, it's basically these two guys, these killers come in, tie up Nick Adams and the and the chef. And they and it's very uh, cliche-ish, the way they talk to Nick Adams. Like, oh, it he's is. a really bright boy. Yeah, he's a really yeah, bright town's boy. town's full of bright boys. <laughs> yeah, and and... and to some extent, to you, that didn't feel like truth. It felt like maybe, I, I, th I think you were kind of implying maybe he had just seen some movie and was it didn't feel like truth to you, whereas Hemingway is really known for sort of telling very, these very truthful-sounding yeah, yeah. stories, just, just as you are. And I wonder, it, it, how, do you, how do you go about that process of asking yourself, you, you, you write down a line, you write down a story, how do you ask yourself, does this feel like truth to me? Mm -hmm. Well, I faced that issue in my new book, big time. Uh, I always felt endangered by the thought that this might read like a Hallmark card. Uh, too sentimental. And I faced, I addressed that directly in the book. I said, yeah, to some people it might seem too sentimental. However, what else do I do? Do I jazz it up with literary tricks? Um, do I not write it about love? What other words should you use? I feel affectionate toward my children. You can't. That sounds ridiculous to me. And in the end, I try to address it bluntly, saying, I know I'm endangered by this, but I need to express it. And... and have you hope the reader feels it through the story, not through what I declare, but through the, the unfolding of anecdote. And sometimes they happen in funny ways. There's an anecdote, a very quick one, of Tad and I, the younger boy and I, watching a basketball game one night. And out of nowhere, he turned at me and said, how old was that guy in the Bible, Methuselah? And I said, I don't know, maybe a thousand years old. And Tad said, wow. And then for the next hour, we watched this great pass. It was a playoff basketball game, tight, exciting game. And right near the end of the game, Tad turns to me and said, what exactly did he eat? <laughs> and at first I laughed. I mean, think what a f and then when you think about it, his dad is, he must think of me as like a Methuselah. I mean, mm -hmm. I think he does. Like, boy, am, is he ancient, deaf and hearing aids and gray hair. And he might have been asking by the, what did exactly did Methuselah eat? He might have been asking, maybe I can find some good food for my dad and keep, you know, keep him going for, for more years. So what started out being funny um, 
I never asked Tad. He doesn't remember the incident anymore. He was too young. It happened too long ago. But I think something like that was going through his head. I'm almost sure. You know, and, and also in this in this book, you know, one thing that separates it out from being too, like, uh, what, what did you say? What was the word you said? Um, like a Hallmark card. Mm -hmm. Is you give extremely great advice about writing. <laughs> like this, this, if all someone does is kind of rip out the pages with the writing advice, that's an MFA in writing. I mean, some of these... I'll just read some of them. Like, um, you know, of course, we talked about this a little bit, but do not be terrified of, of emotion. Be terrified of fraudulence. And I think that's so critical. But this one was very interesting. Stories are not puzzles. Puzzles are puzzles. And my guess is you said that because a lot of kind of, you know, writing advice applies to, let's say, if you're going to write a thriller, you set up a puzzle for the main character that he has to solve, you know, and then he meets his arch nemesis and so on and so on. You have to figure out how to get him there. And I thought that was a very interesting, you know, stories are not, it's not a puzzle to solve to get you from beginning to end. I mean, that, that's, that piece of advice comes from reading too many bad to mediocre stories in my life where I figure that I feel like I'm trying to figure out what is happening in the story. Like fitting, oh, there's that, there's that. What is the story about? Usually in bad and mediocre stories, I get somewhere near the end and finally I get the aboutness. Oh, it's about falling out of love. But you feel as you're reading it, putting it together, that you're fitting pieces into a jigsaw puzzle. And I don't, and the stories can be puzzling. In fact, they should be puzzling, but they shouldn't be puzzles you put together. And uh, it, it's an it came from irritation at. Uh, um, some of my students. Well, and and I love because this is related to this. You write uh, surprise yourself. You might then surprise your reader. So if you're writing something where it's like unusual to you, this thought emotion that maybe was a deeper truth that you uncovered while writing, that if it surprised you, it's probably going to surprise the reader in a in a yeah. in a good way. It'll drive them forward into the story. You hope so. You hope if it surprises you as the author, it might surprise someone else. And, and, and then this was an interesting piece of advice. Uh, bear in mind that stories appeal not only to the head, but also to the stomach, the back of the throat, the tear glands, the adrenal glands, the funny bone, and so on. You list all the body parts, basically. Right. And I was curious what you meant by that. Like, for instance, you have the lungs, the blood, you know, what, 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 what do you think you mean by that? Well, I, try, I just tried to describe it a little earlier, but it's when I re respond to a story... My body responds. I feel it. I pit of my stomach. Read Edgar Allan Poe's story, uh, and something dark and bad opens up inside me. Um, I read Huckleberry Finn, and the little boy in me opens up, and it's opening up through parts of my body. I'm feeling on a river. That kind of that bobbing sensation, and a boyish sensation comes into me. You know, if you're reading a Woody Allen short story, he's writes some, written a few masterpiece short stories, I think, that won, they won no Henry Prizes. They're really great stories. The, my laugh gland, or whatever the hell causes us to laugh, kicks in, but it's laughing um, with meaning. There's a, there's a, it's like laughing at, at, oh, man, that is the human being I've, I know. And 
I've met that person somewhere in my life, and I'm laughing at my, a memory of my own partly. But my body does respond to stories. And if it doesn't respond, it means I'm not, I don't like it much. And so, and so I think, again, like, this, there's so many reasons to, to read Dad's Maybe book. And at first glance, it's like, okay, I'm going to read this great writer, Tim O'Brien, in his his experience of parenting and fatherhood over the past 20 years. And there's going to be literary-sounding right. stories about his children. Yeah. But the reality is this goes so much deeper. It's because, not a parenting book at all. I mean, that's a, it's, I, I, don't, I can't even give advice to myself. <laughs> How can I give it to anybody else? I'm not, but, and yet at the same time, though, <laughs> seeing you or, or reading you break down these stories that you're having yeah. your children read, then you literally just list writing advice and you list how you develop your feelings about war and so on. It's it's so powerful. And you know, that what you were just saying about, you know, have the story not only appeal to the head, appeals to um, appeal to all these other parts. You know what the most disturbing story was for me in the things they carried? And I just thought this story was amazing, was um, how to tell a true war story. So it's basically... Rat, uh, one one of the other yeah. characters, telling the other people in the platoon this story that just seems incredible, and it's about it's about war, it's about love, it's about this weird kind of betrayal, and something really bothered me <laughs> about the story. But then all throughout, you're pacing the story with another character saying, "That's not how you tell a story." So you're almost giving writing advice in the it, story. Yeah, in the story. So I just thought that was a beautiful one, and then. Another thing, you know, which is related to Dad's Maybe book, but the seeds of it, I think, are in 30 years earlier and the things they carried. You're telling this story about Norman Bowker, one of the, right. uh, you know, one of the soldiers, and he basically writes to you and says um, he didn't, he, he felt, even though he was back, he felt somehow like he was almost killed in Vietnam. Right. Like he had no, he didn't feel life anymore. And then he ended up, sadly killing himself a few years later. And I wonder, because so many of your books and your thoughts and, and you know, even again in this dad's maybe book, there, there's a lot about your feelings about war and, and opinions about war and, and how society almost falsely shapes itself around war. I wonder if you never fully pulled out of Vietnam, you take it with you into every, like, do you ever say to yourself, boy, mm -hmm. I wish I could write something that never mentions any war? And I'm sure you have written stuff like that, but. Not really. It's everything. A life is a, a all of a piece for me. Vietnam swirls through everything else and fatherhood swirls through Vietnam and back to my childhood swirls into the here and now. Um, one day, Timmy asked, I was writing a chapter of Bad Dad's Maybe book, and Timmy asked, what are you writing about? And I said, I'm writing about how I hate being called a war writer. And uh, I said, that was a long time ago. That was 50 years ago. And Timmy said, yeah, except you really never left Vietnam. And boy, was he right <laughs> that... Part of me still lives there and always will. It's the same it would be for you if you, your hometown will always be there. Whether you hated it or loved it, you're in a concentration camp. You're not going to leave it behind. 
It's going to be inside you. And um, that to have Timmy utter those words to me, except you never left me, and now I'm dad. He's um, so blunt, by the way. Both your kids are so blunt all throughout the book. <laughs> I love their bluntness. They are. That's, and I love how some of these lines that come out of their mouths, not all of them, but a few of them are literary lines. Except you never left Vietnam. It's the except. Okay, if it was 50 years ago, he doesn't say all that stuff. He said, except you never left Vietnam. And it's the, it's, he meant it, I guess, in a, in a psychological sense. He's been around when I've been silent at the dinner table, and he knows what, what pushes my buttons of memory. And both kids know. And uh, they're, they, they, they treat me the way they would, if they went into a church, that you're not going to be loud and you're not going to interrupt what's going on inside of it. And they they treat me delicately and really well um, when they when they can see me thinking about the past. Well, you know, T- Tim O'Brien, author of the just released Dad's Maybe book, which this really is a literary event. Your first book in 20 years. So many of your books have been classics. You won the National Book Award uh, with uh, going to Cacciato. Going after Cacciato, yeah. And, uh, you know, this this collection, The Things They Carried, for me, uh, is one of the best books of all time. I remember just the first time I read just the first chapter, and you're so just methodical listing what every soldier is carrying. But we, we you get this, over, the reader gets this overwhelming sense that this is just, we're going along for a ride that's much deeper than just what they're carrying. They're carrying things in their head, their emotions. We're about to see some extreme things happen to these characters. And it's, I've probably in the past 30 years read this over 50 times. It's been such an inspiration to my own meager writing. But now I'm so looking forward to keep on rereading Dad's Maybe book, not, you know, for your stories of fatherhood. I'm a father as well, but also for again your 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 point of view on the world, your your writing advice. It's all so so wise. I'm gonna just uh, I I want to be respectful of your time. I know you you're on you're on book tour. This is the beginning of your book tour. Uh, there's one line I'll, I'd like to read, uh, and then we can close it out. So you say, and and this is in Dad's Maybe book. And while a story's truths may not be verifiable by the scientific method, they surely can be verified and are verified in the hearts and bellies and tear ducts of individual readers as a page is turned at the stroke of midnight. And I just I just love that because I think truth, everybody always wants to know, oh, how do you describe things or where's my thesaurus or how do you do a, a plot? But at the end of the day, it has to boil down. You have to feel this, you have to scrape away every layer except the, the truth. And that's very difficult. It is. So, so thanks once again, Tim well, O'Brien, for not only coming on the podcast, but writing these books well, that have changed pleasure. my life. I really enjoyed it. I, you wouldn't know it from the times you were crying in the podcast, but I, <laughs> I, I appreciate it. <laughs> Thank you. I had a great time. Thank, Thank you. you. Justin and so good. Thousands of summer deals at your Nordstrom Rack Store. 
Save up to 60% on new arrivals from Vince, Rag & Bone, Adidas, Joe's, Marc Jacobs, and more. Great brands, great prices every day at Nordstrom Rack. But hurry for first dibs. Get your summer favorites up to 60% off at Nordstrom Rack today. Great brands, great prices. That's why you rack.